Welcome to Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. Masculine tops, power bottoms, butch girls, femboys, bears, otters, unicorns. There's no shortage of labels that queer people use to describe different sexual identities and preferences. But how do we navigate that horny, thorny path between realizing we're queer and deciding which boxes to check when filling out our dating profiles? Fruit Bowl features first-person stories that explore the unique ways we develop our sexual identities by sharing the sometimes messy, always fascinating, real-life sex histories of queer people. Our first introduction to sex, the embarrassing moments we'd like to forget, and the reliable bedroom moves that we've discovered along the way. Basically, all the stuff we wish we'd known when we first came out. Interviews are edited for clarity and brevity because we all know how much we love to talk about ourselves. Thanks for listening. Let's begin. Hello there and welcome to Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. I'm Dave, the creator and host of Fruit Bowl, and today my co-host is Lee. Welcome, Lee. Hi, Dave. (laughs) Lee is one of my interviewees for the documentary. They're going to help me uh, with co-hosting today. And first thing we're going to do is we're going to listen to an interview with Jerry. And Jerry is from Long Island. And you're from the East Coast, aren't you? Yeah, I grew up in Connecticut, pretty close to New York. So I have a certain fondness for that, you know, (laughs) iconic East Coast, like Long Island accent. Yes. And Jerry's lived here for at least 20 years and still has his Long Island accent. So it's definitely uh, legit. (laughs) (laughs) But you don't sound East Coast. Um, I grew up in a place that is a little bit more neutral. (laughs) But if I get super excited about something, um, occasionally you can hear hear it. Um, Both my parents are New Yorkers. (laughs) So it's it's just like very watered down, like second gen suburb. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm boring Kansas, uh, you know, newscaster uh, accent. So I love accents, so and, and I think listeners will enjoy listening to Jerry. Also, he has amazing stories. All right, well, we're going to listen to Jerry, and then we'll be back to give our reactions to his, his interview. Okay, here we go. My name is Jerry. I'm about 105, or 50s in gay years. I uh, live in Seattle, uh, born in Queens, raised in Long Island. And I got to dig this up. There's, I was in first grade and it was Thanksgiving and I drew a picture of a pilgrim with an open shirt and a hairy chest. And my mother's like, you're so artistic. I was like, no, mom, I'm a homo, you know? So yeah, in early, early age, I knew that. It's just uh, coming to terms with that and embracing that. I think the moment that I, I acknowledged that the only time I watched the Dukes of Hazzard is when I knew that the Duke boys were not wearing a shirt. I'm old, so I mean, back in the day when we had cable, we had a box, and there was th- three rows of you know channels, and if you were lucky, you had the Playboy station. But if you could push down two at the same time, you may be able to flip over to the Playboy station and get like a grainy view of some sex going on. It was straight porn, you know, and it's like yeah, a lot of tit and ass, you know, with the females, and if you got a cock out of that, that was a, a bonus, you know, that and. I think for a lot of gays, the locker room is a 
place of pleasure and pain at the same point. You know, it's like, all right, you get to look at your, your friends and classmates, but also not to be outed at the same time. Being an older gay, it was much complicated because there was no internet, there was none of that. I mean, I had no gay friends, I'm, I'm the eldest. So it was really just learning by chance and learning from older men of what goes where and what happens, so uh, through experience. It wasn't until my late teens, early 20s to be able to embrace having sex without being a place of anger or rage or abuse. I mean, I found the Chelsea Piers in New York in the mid 80s, where which is a cornucopia of beautiful gay sex in the open. Down past Christopher Street, you walk down Christopher Street right across the highway and the pier right there. It was the mid 80s at the rise of the AIDS epidemic. So part of the pier system was a fuck you to the universe and to our government. It's like, we're just gonna be who we are and have sex and do what we want. But basically it was a pier where men just hung out naked and bathed in the sun and whatever happened, happened. You know, and that was accepted. We looked out for each other, even if we didn't know each other. If some police were coming, we would all put our clothes on in an instant. So there definitely was a buddy system with that. It was basically the peers that I learned uh, the dynamics of what what sex was. So I had to be around anywhere from 19 to 21. Um, I didn't have a car yet, so I had to be under 21. And I wasn't legal to get into bars per se. I mean, we all always found a way to get in. But uh, I met this guy at the piers, and it's killing me because I've been thinking about this all day. I can't remember his name, so we'll call him Rich because he was a banker and had some money. And he lived on North Shore, Long Island, and me living on the South Shore. Um, we headed off. I fucked him in public. We exchanged numbers and we had, you know, our fare for like a year. And he would pick me up on like once a month. His wife would travel a lot and I would come over and look, 19, 20 years old, a date is Boone's Farm and Burger King. And here you have a, a man that's red wine and steak and shrimp and a lot of cocaine. So I was in heaven. One night we're hanging out. And he was like, actually he called me before he was picking me up. He's like, I want you to fist me tonight. I'm like, I have no idea what that is. I have no access to, again, internet, any of that stuff. So I'm like, all right. And I come over and you know we're eating and drinking. And then he tells me what the hell that is. I'm like, oh, we're gonna need a lot more cocaine for this. Again, it was the eighties. I mean, cocaine was like a Colombian hello. It was everywhere. So um, he's like, well, I got an eight ball. I was like, well, we're getting, what are you going to use? Because that's all for me. So we had two eight balls and we threw down. And one of the challenges about having sex with him is we would go back to his place and he, he had this great Dane that would love to watch as we fucked. And I love dogs. I, lo I love most dogs, except this dog had like the bloodhound eyes. I can't handle bloodhounds, I, I, they make me nervous. I'm like, how do I make you happy? You look sad all the time. So this dog would sit there, you know, watching us and you know, he would be like, well, it's his house too. I'm like, this is creepy, but fuck it. So um, the time comes and you know, I'm pretty high and going in, I mean, I'm, 
I'm a young man, so you're limber. I'm able to get in and also do lines at the same time. And plugging away, and then out of the corner of my eye, I see the dog, like I see the dog, which creeps me out to begin with, it lets out like this weird noise and I just see it fall to its side and I look over and it pisses and shits all over the floor. So both of us stop, we're like, what the fuck is happening? And then we realize the fucking dog dropped dead. So he's freaking the hell out. He jumps out of bed, totally freaked out, neglecting to realize that my arm is up his ass, like my hand is holding onto his spinal cord at this point. So I go flying off the bed as he jumps out, click the nightstand, hit my head, buckets of blood everywhere. It's kind of like The Shining when the elevator doors open up and all the blood come out. He's on the floor crying, you know, poor dog's dead. I'm on the bed crying, not because I'm in pain, not because there's blood everywhere, not because we spilled the cocaine, but because your instinct, what is the first thing you do when you hurt yourself? You cover yourself and I promptly rubbed frothy shit all in my eyeball. It was awful. So that was our last date. It was the worst car ride home ever. I actually was too high to go home. He dropped me off at the Huntington train station. I took another eight ball and danced the night off in New York City. And yeah, that was the last time we saw each other. So that would have to be it. You know, my worst sex experience. There you go. Move in bed is if both parties don't get physically or emotionally hurt. That is a win. Um, you know, I would have to say, growing up and my teens into my 20s, I was with both men and women, and this is gonna steal some gay points away from my life. I was good at eating pussy. I loved it. Only because I didn't have to perform. I'm like, I will go to town. And through that, that I think enhanced my ability to eat ass at the same point. I don't want Jordia, again, not a good look. But uh, yeah, I would have to say that. I'm a hungry little man that just wants to eat, you know? Um, I love watching other people get off. I mean, I love it. I, when, if I'm in control and I'm gonna get you off, I, I get off on that, you know? Um, and it could be, it, it depends of who I'm with and what that looks like, you know? Um, part of that could be the switch of the power play, you know, which I, I, I enjoy. Um, there's also moments of actually being emotionally and intellectually intimate with somebody, you know, and just even having that intimate moment, you know, or we're gonna fuck, we're gonna get bruises, we're gonna bite and scratch and get rug burns. I mean, it really depends on the context. I really can't say, it's like Sophie's Choice, what child would you pick, you know? <laughs> It's a cornucopia. Why would you limit yourself to one? The, the person, the environment, or sobriety, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, whiskey, dick, fuck. I mean, you're, you're at my age, it's limited, you know? Age, you know, I have some people I'm with that are 20 years younger than me, and they'll call me up on a Monday night at 11, be like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm in bed. They're like, I'll be right over. It's like, that's not a fucking invitation. And in your 20s, it's like, you wanna fuck five times in a row. I'm like, look, I got three rounds of me. After that, it's like rubbing a genie lamp, a cloud of smoke's coming out and you're not getting three wishes. Sorry. So it really depends on the context. (laughs) 
So if I had the opportunity to go back and look at my baby gay self, um, there would be a multitude of things. There would be to love yourself, to embrace who you are, and to be gentle on yourself. My formative years was the ugly 80s at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, and that just heightened my own inner homophobia, and it gave permission, people permission to hate gay people. You know, it was awful. I mean, it mimics our country now, you know. Um, so yeah, to really just love myself, it took me a long time to love who I am and to love other people. I'm gr I was great at fucking people. You know, you want to fucking bruise, throw down, you got it. But to be intimate and to make love, that was, it took me years to learn, you know. So I would encourage my younger self to do that. Okay, and we're back with uh, reactions to Jerry's interview. What'd you think? I really appreciated it. I think that it's always so wonderful and enlightening when we get to hear voices of a slightly older generation of um, gay and queer people. Yeah. Listening to it, you realize how seldom we hear that voice. It's just so wonderful to just, like, hear this honest portrayal. And also, like, I found listening to it, there were so many ties still between mm -hmm. that older generation, maybe somebody who's, like, 30 years older than me, and issues that, like, like that we face as queer people in our lives today. Like, what would you think is one, one theme? Well, something that I really appreciated uh, about his interview was the anecdote of the men on the pier and mm -hmm. how there was still this, like, very toxic police presence. Yeah. And the men, um, despite the fact that they were strangers, really banded together to watch out for each other's safety when they're, uh, when the police came. Yeah. Um, and so that, to me, like, really, I think, draws parallels to where we are in the political climate today. Obviously, it's not that bad today, but it sometimes feels that way. I, yeah. And I, you know what? I feel like even though I think that also like that's like a little bit of a privilege thing too, right? Like yeah. where I feel like maybe the spaces that we occupy aren't as heavily like policed as spaces that like other people occupy. And we also have the privilege of like living in Seattle, which is a fairly progressive place. But I wonder what it might feel like to live in a different part of the country right now. Yeah. I actually moved to New York uh, in 95. I was there until 99. And I actually saw just the tail end of that culture because they shut down the piers and they renovated that part of the West Side Highway between the West Village and, and Chelsea. So it's it's just not the same as it used to be. Do you think that it's weird to be nostalgic for something like the piers that was really a result of queers being pushed to the margins. Maybe it's not nostalgia. Like, maybe it's grasping at anything. Yeah. Because there is so little positive representation. And that, for better or for worse, like, that was the queer culture I was exposed to. That was the limited representation I had, was, like, hearing about gay men in the twice-a-year, like, HIV health education class, you know, yeah. starting in elementary school. And that's, like, what I had until I was, like, much older to hold on to. So it's 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 not necessarily a good nostalgic feeling, but it's also, like, important to acknowledge that, like, 
that was what was there. Right. It's like the Stonewall. Like, we we didn't choose to have the Stonewall be a landmark and have it represent queer uh, liberation, but that's just the way it is. Like, <laughs> other people have the March on Washington or whatever, and we have a queer bar in the West Village in, in New York City, and, and I feel like it's just as good a landmark as any. I think what, what I'm nostalgic about is the fact that it just sort of happened. Like it was a it was a spontaneous uh, meeting place that queer people created for themselves, so that they could meet each other, and that's what I'm nostalgic about. Because I feel like those spaces are disappearing, and it does make me sad because so much of our meeting places have gone online. You know, they be, that's become the place where people meet each other, and I feel like queer bars now. They're mostly just for meeting up with friends that you already know or that you've met online before getting there. So there's not that sort of spontaneity and that that uh, kismet of just meeting people and and getting to know them in person first. That's what I love about Jerry's interview and is is evoking that sort of nostalgia. There is a nude beach here in Seattle that's actually pretty cool. Um, it's it's a mixed space. It's not exclusively queer, but there's definitely like a queer vibe that's there. And uh, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. I don't know that people hook up and have sex there like they would at the piers back in the day, but uh, it's definitely like a unique Seattle experience. Cool. What did you think of Jerry's horror story? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> like it's it started and just with the dog, <laughs> just with the dog, I was like, oh, I totally tap into that. I really don't like animals in the room. It feels so voyeuristic and like mm -hmm. they're so judgy. <laughs> and then it just like as it went on, it just got a little bit more horrible and a little bit more horrible. <laughs> and just like Jerry has told that story a lot. It's a famous Jerry story. So I'm really happy that that it's preserved for all time. For me, just hearing it, I'm just like, uh, yeah, I guess I've had some bad experiences, but nothing that bad. So it almost gave me comfort that it had happened to somebody else already. One of my fantasies is to have a dramatization of his dream, <laughs> like like they do with drunk history, and like uh, have have the whole scene like play out and in a narrative sort of situation. Um, I loved the his discussion of eating ass. <laughs> I loved how he viewed um, his experiences like having sex with women and going down on women as like practice for like the big leagues. <laughs> um, I also really appreciated the subtle reference to getting Giardia, <laughs> which is something that I read about recently. I didn't know you could, that could happen to you, but of course you can get parasites from is eating what, ass. Is that what that is? Yeah, I think Giardia is like usually like a waterborne illness, like mm. in countries with like um, maybe like a different level of sanitation. I see. Uh, infrastructure, but you can get it from eating ass. <laughs> and, and other um, parasites too. Right, well, you know, stuff's gonna happen mm -hmm. when you make oral anal contact. Mm -hmm. It's just the reality of the situation. 
Well, he did say he was a hungry little man, so. <laughs> right. You know. I love that he, yeah, practiced eating ass by first eating pussy. Listening to his interview, I'm just, again, so conscious of the fact that he is from a generation where so many people were lost. Well, I really appreciated Jerry's advice to himself. Yeah. And again, that was like another moment for me that felt like even though his story is so unique because of the fact that we're missing this generation of predominantly gay men. Um, and so we just don't hear these stories. Yeah. Um, the fact that he would have told himself to love himself and be gentle and um, also kind of experience some internalized homophobia. Like, that was something that still felt, like, very intergenerational and still could be um, relevant for, you know, a really wide range of queer people today. And um, especially, like, that internalized homophobia, like, I wonder if that connects back to just, like, the fact that there was no representation. Mm -hmm. Like, when he's talking about how he had to access, like, really any information or any imagery of sex and none of it was queer yeah um you know it really harkens back to like of just very different time and experience and i guess that is a nostalgia i can't really relate to yeah um but yeah it just yeah i just i don't know it just really gave such just like rich representation mm-hmm. of the experience yeah of being a gay man of of just, like, this slightly older generation than Mm -hmm. I am. Yeah. But, yeah, you're right. He had to go through what all of us have to go through, which is eventual self-acceptance. And he probably had a few more obstacles than younger people do now. But the process is, yeah, very similar still. Okay, well, we're going to take a short break. And after that, we're going to go straight into Lee's interview. Fruit Bowl is proud to promote Seattle's Kaleidoscope, a weekly film series curated, edited, and hosted by Shane Walland and Michael Anderson, video artists, filmmakers, and lifelong conservators of pop culture. Kaleidoscope features found video oddities and delights, lovingly curated and often set around a theme, a showcase of the good, the bad, the weird, and the wonderful, an audiovisual mind-melting evening of low-investment, high-return video entertainment. New every time. Visit KaleidoscopeSeattle.com. That's C-O-L-L-I-D-E-O Scope Seattle.com. My childhood was so bizarre and I actually grew up like on one hand quite religious and on the other hand had like was a total free range child. So it was a combination of things. I learned about sex um, from a book that I read in the third grade about the human body. It was quite precocious, so it was probably maybe for a middle schooler. So I read, you know, like the digestive system and the nervous system, and then it was like, oh my gosh, gametes. But I, I didn't really, really understand what I was reading yet, but I knew that sperm and ovum existed from the third grade on. I was not a cool kid. I was super queer and I didn't know it. I mean, I knew it, but I didn't know it yet. And I just like 
went to the library a lot after school because it was across the street from my elementary school. And my parents told me that I had to be a doctor in this like really stereotypical like Jewish way. So it was just like, I should probably read a lot about science. And so there's like no other reason. It wasn't like I was actively finding it, but like once that, you know, like knowledge was gleaned, there was no turning back. Um, and then also I watched Oz as it live aired. I might've still been in like elementary school because I moved in the fourth grade. And I remember watching it in like the condo that I lived in until the summer before I started fourth grade. So it was like too young to be watching Oz. And so I learned a lot about sex from Oz. And um, that's not so great for understanding consent or anything like that. But I would say that like the combination of the two things, I had the science side and I had the very graphic prison sex. Um, and that's, yeah, that's it. That's where I learned about sex. Um, notwithstanding, it's still one of my favorite shows. My house, like I said, was so weird. And um, I found the previous tenant's porn stash. I just was like in the bathroom, in the upstairs bathroom, which is like between the room I shared with my sister and my parents had like a small suite. And, but we shared this bathroom at the top of the stairwell and there was a medicine cabinet tucked in an alcove and I think I was like climbing a chair or a step stool to get something on the top shelf like normal like sunblock or something and I put my hand on top and there was a little dip and I felt something glossy up there so I just started to pull and I was just like holy moly what is this so I found like Eight, like hardcore like smut magazines and then they were like mine. I just remember like a lot of shiny purple g-strings and just like really gross like veiny all over like fake tan dudes and like always bald always like 10 to 15 years older than like their like them female counterparts. Um, and a lot of acrylic nails. Oh yeah, there was penetration. And I hid them, I was dumb, and I didn't put them back where I found them. Cause at that point we had lived in the house for two years and nobody else seemingly had found them. And um, I hid them interspersed between all my other magazines. And then that's also how I got caught cause I didn't do a very good job at hiding them. Um, yeah, so that was that story. So they were mine for, I would say like three or six months until I got caught. Just like ran into a shame hole and cried for three days until my grounding was over. But by like middle school or early high school, like we had gotten internet at home and I was like really into this website called girl.com, like early, like late nineties, early aughts vibe. And it was like very like, like probably like very watered down of like what was happening here with like Riot Girl and stuff like that. But it was like, let's talk about like how to protect yourself from STDs and like boundaries and these other things. So there people would talk about their own experiences 
So that was when I started to get into more like safer spaces surrounding like sex and sexuality. And so, um, but again, like super queer, super burb. So it wasn't like kissing my friends or anything like that. Like I was, it wasn't like I was in the closet, but it just like felt so unsafe. So I was just like really living this internet life and just like reading a lot of poorly written softcore erotica written by like other creative teens. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that that's like when I really started to like seek it out and like engage more, even if it was just more like in a cyber sense. The first time I had like really strong queer attractions, actually my parents sent me to fat camp. And when I got there, I met this like fat, butch, Hispanic girl from like Sacramento. And I was like done. I was like toast. I just like followed her around the next eight weeks between like water aerobics and weigh-ins. And um, I think everybody thought that we were like sleeping together because there was a double room open in our suite and the counselor like we were all the all of the people in the dorm were like let's make it like a fun and hangout room and then you saw the counselor's eyes like dart to us and she's like I need to lock that door <laughs> so nothing ever really happened outside of like stolen kisses but that was my first like hardcore queer crush I have like my first like gross straight sex first time. Mm -hmm. Then I have my more first like queer sex first time. And then I have like almost, even though it's like real like late in the game, almost what I consider like more authentic first time. For gross straight sex, I just got bored. And I was like living at my parents' house. And I was just like, okay, I just want to start sleeping with strangers like everybody else I know. So I went on to OkCupid and I went on a date with somebody. I think he was skinny. He's kind of lanky. And that's it. And we like bonded over the fact that we both had worked at Pier One. And it was like pretty awful over like C-grade Caesar salads. And then it was just like, mm, should we go back to your place? Yeah. And then I was just like, okay, unceremoniously, this is it. I'm just like over it. And it was exactly what having sex with like a cis straight dude sounds like. You're lying there, it's bad, like nobody cares. He fell asleep. It was a twin bed, I'm pretty sure. Like I don't even put some put that much thought into it. Cause I'm just like, eh, like what was that? And then I remember just like sitting naked on his couch, texting my friends, being like, what do I do? Leaving and making out with somebody different the next day or like within a few days never talking again and that was it it's sad that like these unceremonious sexual experiences are like really normal mm -hmm. for people right and like we're not part of a culture where we talk about like how to have how to like think about your partner <laughs> like I was missing language to describe being like non-binary that was what I was really missing um but like yeah like I just was like everybody else is doing it. I don't have like a hang up. Like I don't wanna be like a virgin at marriage, a concept they don't believe in. I just am gonna like go get it over with and I did.
I was living in a rural part of Connecticut, like about as rural as you're going to get within three hours of New York City. And so it was rural enough that if you wanted to date, you were going to, you might have to drive. So I was like seeing a person who like lived in a different town. We were both um, kind of just like needed to grow a lot as people. So it was like very tumultuous, but I was just like very sexually attracted to them. And so um, I think on our second date, I was just like, can I, can I fuck you? Like already, can we just get this over with? And so um, I was unceremoniously living in the house of like a 50 something year old lesbian hoarder um, at the time. And they were living at their sister's house. So we were like, hmm, this isn't so great. We're having like team problems right here. So they stayed at their other sister's house um, who like lived on a lake and it was really nice and cute. So they invited me over after dinner and we were like fooling around, making out in their bedroom there. And um, finally like stripped down naked, starts to get hotter and heavier. And the sister came home and like not just came home, but that family had real poor boundaries and opened the fucking door. And I was like, I barely even know this person that I'm sleeping with. And now I'm meeting their sister and I'm naked. That was probably the most embarrassing sexual experience. I, unless I've like blacked something out deep in my brain, I can't think of anything worse than that. And nothing since has happened that can top that. We went to um, Provincetown in Cape Cod um, where her family had a house. And so she like zipped the twin beds together because we like couldn't have sex in any of the other beds because like other family members slept there. You can probably sense reasons why this didn't last very long. So we show up in P-Town and then we had dinner and we went back to the house and started to make out. And I remember like making out on the couch and like kind of like power moves. And I, they were like sitting on the couch and I was kind of like dancing a little and like taking my clothes off and like the buttons and like, you know, things are flying everywhere. We go back into the bedroom and you know, at this point we're just like naked, hands everywhere, like lots of like heavy petting and then they're like, I have a birthday surprise for you. And I'm like, what? And they like start like wiggling the fucking harness up. And they're like, I got you a present. And it's this like, honestly, it this was like this unimpressive like red dick. And I was like, cool. And they're like, I'm gonna fuck you with this. And I was like, cool and so yeah you know it just moved forward from there there was some like gentle like dick sucking dick sucking and caressing and then you know like she fucked me but honestly 
it was a lot like the first first time where I just kind of lied there and it was just very unceremonious after a certain point and I was like you seem to be working really hard. It didn't feel good to the ratio of effort that was being exerted on the part of my partner. But you know what like I think that it really goes back to like the same point of like my first first time where the communication wasn't there. So it doesn't matter how hard you're working. If you're not talking during sex, it's probably gonna be bad. Um, and it was like that where like nobody, it was a cool surprise and I felt very like cared for in a way. But on the other hand, like if you're gonna specifically buy a dick for this relationship, maybe like bring me or at least ask me. Cause like, you know, that was part of the problem. It like wasn't the dick for me you know, on the receiving end. And so, yeah, it just felt, again, like kind of unceremonious because I wasn't consulted in my own pleasure. In a former life, I was like a total pillow princess. Because I was sleeping with people who were like into that dynamic, there was always like so many hangups and they like were not necessarily my hangups, but like the other person always wanted to be in this like role, like I'm the top and, I'm going to please you. And I could never like really even get that into it because I was just like, this is too, um, like I can do really great performative work, but I can, cannot like make my body do things that it's like not wanting to. And so I think I was just tricking all of us to thinking that it was really fun, including myself. So I frustrated many a top um, in a previous, incarnation of self. I actually like really struggled for a little bit because I like wanted to be a top and I was like, well, if I'm not a pillow princess, I'm obviously a top, but that's not true. And I, I'm really now more identify as verse and really again, like emphasize just like consent and communication over anything else. And so I've given up on having a label or having a job. I'm a team player now and um, I'm just open to sort of I'm not gonna say endless possibilities, but I'm gonna say like almost endless possibilities that can occur if two people have a good connection and good communication. I would say my brand is pretty hot right now and um, my like favorite move is like if I'm going down on somebody to just like stare into their soul via their eyes like I've made many a person just sort of like lose their shit from 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 doing that but like more so than that confusing ability because like I'm not even sure how we can do it because like if I'm not wearing my glasses and blind as that but somehow it still works um I think like my ability to make consent sexy, which has been really difficult to figure out how to do, but to like integrate this like pleasure and pleasing aspect of sex with consent has been this thing that I've really had to be like aware of to figure out how to make the dynamic work and that fine line. But like once I figured out like the sweet spot, I actually think that that's my best move. Do you like it when I touch you here? Or like, may I? 
you know, take this article of clothing off and then like doing it for them, like really like delicately and sensual, or um, may I take my own article of clothing off or like, do you like, you know, to be touched here? Um, and I think that's extra important. Like now I'm more having sex with like gender queer and trans folks. And like, we have really complicated relationships with our bodies. So like, I think it's also just like really reaffirming in those regards. And that's what makes the sex good because you're showing respect, right? To people who, who might have some baggage. Um, and so that has been my power move more than anything else. Don't trust what you see and what you read would be my number one advice to myself in particular. I think it could apply to other people too, but you, you, we've talked about my experiences, right? Like I wasn't having dialogues. I was having one conversation, one sided conversations with media. And um, I think that I had this very um, juxtaposed exposure to sexual knowledge where I had this very, very in-depth scientific knowledge of like how uh an egg is fertilized and then I had like knowledge of hardcore porn and like very graphic often non-consensual sex that was happening in a prison on HBO and like that's not good that's those are very extreme examples of knowledge especially if you don't have a lot of it so yeah so just like um don't don't believe what you read and what you see as real. That's not what sex is. I think when I was younger, I might, it would have been nice to understand um, that like to have more knowledge of consent, like to learn about consent before learning about sex, um, learning about boundaries, and also like learning that like sex isn't just like penis and vagina sex. Um, and that it's so much broader than that. I think having um, a broader definition um, and a consent-based definition would have been the healthiest thing for me and a lot of other folks I know as well. That was sort of how I knew that like queerness existed was from Oz. And even if it wasn't like great portrayals, like they did have people who were gender non-conforming um, whether by choice or by like prison, prison like structural power dynamics, um, engaging in sex, sex acts, whether consensual or not, with other prisoners or other guards or whatever. Um, so yeah, it did give me this like exposure, but also it still had this catch of like, somebody is a giver and somebody is a receiver and these roles are really fixed. And there is, you are like a lesser person if you're like the receiver, that was still really built into Oz. Um, and so like, even though, yeah, like it was exposure to like not straight sex, it still had a lot of really toxic hangups. There are in the show, like relationships where people are having consensual sex, but a lot of the sex in Oz is violent and coercive. So it's not, it wouldn't even fit like my definitions of like what is sex and what is sexy, it's much more rape, right? And so like, that's not sex. Right. And that, but it was being presented as such and I didn't have the other knowledge to discern that um, because I was far too young to be watching that show. And so I think, yeah, like, like just being armed with very different knowledge or knowing how to um, tease what I needed out of it 
would have been really helpful. Or maybe if they gave me a book that was actually like comprehensive and age appropriate, that could have been helpful too. Go ahead and say what these. Okay, so I loved it. I was actually so scared. And before we started recording, I, I was like, I'm so scared. What did I say? I can't remember. And listening to it, um, I am really impressed with my impromptu analysis of my early years as sort of a sexual being. Um, and especially the... What I liked hearing was the focus on consent and knowledge as the basis for, like, healthy sexuality and healthy relationships. And 10 months later, that still definitely rings true for me. Yeah, and I feel like you did such a great job of articulating that, discovering your your role in sex and, like, not needing to have a label like top or bottom, but being fluid and and improvising and responding to your partner's needs. I feel like that is such an important thing that we learn uh, when we grow older as queer people, because it's not taught to us. We have to learn it for ourselves. And I feel like you did such a great job describing that, that journey that we all take. So I really appreciate that part of your, your interview, especially. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, I think that that still really resonates too. And I guess like a big change since the interview is I, I did mention I was a hot commodity and I was dating like kind of a lot of people like I at the time. At that, the time of our interview? At the time of the interview. And mm-hmm. now I've just been dating one person who I was dating, you know, maybe I think was probably talking to or something very early dating at the time of the interview. And now we're still dating. And so it's funny how maybe some of the things I was seeing was almost theoretical because I had done a lot of learning and a lot of growing since I moved to Seattle about two years ago. And now this is my first more like longer term experience um, dating somebody like as an out non-binary person. And so it just, you know, really interesting to see how these things that I talked about from this like very knowledgeable place about myself, like actually play out in a really real honest relationship. Cool. And do you find yourself still being pretty fluid with with your your role? Um, is it something that you're still negotiating or have you guys settled into a, a, a pattern? Yeah. So we both identify as switches. I'll be honest, like something I don't think we really talk about that much is like, you know, I'm chronically ill and I have a hip problem. So I tend to like lean bottom because of that reason, but not because I'm actually a bottom leaning person. It's just like logistically easier, but we're both verse and that, and it does play out that way that we both take on more like dominant or like passive or however you want to frame that dynamic roles like in our sex life. That's so healthy. I feel like gay men often will decide on a position and then just keep it that way and build their identity around it. And I'm just like, that is a lot to ask of yourself to sort of cement that and to not let it change or, or yeah, over time. Um, I feel like sometimes gay people do a disservice to themselves by, by deciding too soon what their role is going to be. Yeah. And, um, you know, I sort of identify as a recovering black and white thinker and, 
I, there was this time, like I said, I was this like pillow princess and I thought, oh, like this is, this is it. I'm not a top. Mm-hmm. I'm not a top. So it must be this. It must be this, you know, this other role. And it's just so limiting. Yeah. And really maybe, maybe it sounds strategy if I say boring, <laughs> but I'm speaking about myself. It was boring right. for me. I recognize that it might be different for other people. <laughs> right. I want to make a movie about your fat camp uh, crush. That story is so sweet to me. Oh, my gosh. I, that's like, honestly, it's one of my favorite stories for my life. And I wish that misconnections on Craigslist like, wasn't shut down. Right. Because I think about, I think about that person yeah. Not that often, but I do feel deep in my heart that, like, I kind of missed the boat there. <laughs> like, I, and I wonder what would have happened. We all have one of those stories. What would have happened? Mm-hmm. There's no way you think to find her? I've thought about it, but I don't even know her last name. Oh. I wasn't even 18 yet. Yeah. Like, it was so long ago mm-hmm. that part of me would be scared because even though in some ways it's a little bit of, like, a sad story, like, nothing happened, there's something just so, like, precious and pure yeah. about it. And it's just, like, really nice that I had this, like, early queer experience that wasn't, like, toxic in any way. Right. And I almost wonder, like, what if this person is just, like, really different now than I remember them to be because that would be... You know, I'm in my early 30s now. Like, that's almost, that's like 15 years ago wow. that we knew each other, that we met. And so I almost wonder, like, what if I found her, nothing's going to happen realistically. Right. And I could ruin this, like, really nice story that I have. <laughs> Especially, like, when you listen to the other stories. Yeah. Um. You know, <laughs> this is the nice one. <laughs> this is the cute one. It's kind of smushy. Yeah. And so I kind of just, like, maybe I I feel a little bit like let sleeping dogs lie. Right. But you say that nothing happened, but I think something did happen in that you learned something about yourself that summer. And that is so valuable from the point of view of a young queer person to have had that first crush. I feel like we've all had that experience and it's it's something to be cherished yeah, I definitely learned something, and I, maybe in, like, further analysis and re- revisiting of the story, um, part of me even now is, like, I should have listened to that person and known that, like, I'm most attracted to maybe, like, chubby gender nonconforming people. It would have made my life a lot easier, let me tell you. Um, but I was young and naive, and as you know from the interview, had very limited access to helpful resources, and so I kind of ignored that voice and, like, pushed it down. I, I, I wish adults were, were better at helping young people. I feel like that's also a theme in your <laughs> in your interview. And I really admire your agency early in life, uh, looking up the medical explanations of, of sex and then also educating yourself, although it wasn't the best source of information with the porn and also Oz. <laughs> and then also just the fact that, like, you took it upon yourself to, like, go online and lose your virginity just because you wanted to. And I feel like so much of the time, a lot of us do that um, in a passive way. And you were definitely like, 
you took matters into your own hands and I really admire that. Well, thank you. Um, I just, what can I say? Like if I feel motivated enough, I'm probably going to get it done. (laughs) And this is the probably the most literal example of just getting something done. I honestly wonder sometimes what would happen to our society if young people were given real education about queer sex. I know that our culture would consider that indoctrination, but there's just so much distorted information that people get from different sources. I feel like if it were somehow streamlined and made accessible to people in a very non-judgmental way, it would it would do everybody a, a huge service. <laughs> I really value information. And yeah. I do think that that like, reflects in all of the stories that I've told. But I don't just value knowledge. Um, I value also like the toolbox that you need to yeah. like assemble that knowledge into something useful. Yes. You need to know how to interpret the knowledge and to make it applicable to your life. And that is something that is missing um, for young people, young queer people. But it's also just something that you figure out as you grow older, which is sort of the reason why I'm doing this podcast. If you were to have a young person today come up to you and say, what's a good resource for me to look at if if, if it means getting real useful information on queer sex? Like, how would you answer that question? I would probably recommend something like Trans Bodies, Trans Selves, or maybe if they were a little bit older teen, maybe even something like the Crash Pad series, you know, that is really representative of, like, diverse bodies and, like, good consent-driven safer sex practices. Or What is that? Is that a... Crash Pad is, like, queer porn it's predominantly lesbian porn but they do have like non-binary people and also gender non-conforming people in it so and they also are really great about safer sex practices so it's a website it's yeah it's like a website okay um it sounds like you really got a lot out of that girl.com it sounds like that was an amazing resource it was because it was like in conversation yeah and also it was like safe to kind of like challenge people too yeah um i was too scared to do that in like irl yeah and to have the safe space where i could go and have discussions and like fight with teen anti-choice activists and write shitty softcore (laughs) queer erotica was, like, really helpful for me personally. And I, I don't know if that website still exists. Yeah. Um, but I hope that something like it exists. Right. I feel like there probably is. Maybe I'll do a little research and see if I can put some links on the on my website or something. But I would be interested in knowing what, what resources are out there. Um, I really think... Your move and that you describe in making consent sexy um, and communicating. I feel like that's such a valuable piece of advice to maybe young people um, who are just exploring queer sex and making sure that you and your potential partner are on the same page and that even while you're having sex, you're you're talking 
Um, I feel like sometimes in our culture, we expect sex to be intuitive and to almost be a mind reader to your partner and not asking questions. And that's that's a really valuable skill that I think is definitely worth uh, fostering. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think so much of porn is just sort of just gives you the impression that you should just shut up and moan. And that's not good. Yeah. Like, that's not good. That's not healthy. And that doesn't lead to, like, pleasurable sexual experiences and or, like, may lead to kind of traumatic sexual experiences, too. And so I think, yeah, like, if I were to give advice to younger people who are maybe just, like, early in their careers as sexual beings, I would say speaking openly and honestly to the best of your ability. I know how tough that is um, with your partner or partners is hopefully will glean good results. And honestly, if they can't do that, that either needs to be like another conversation or they might not be the best person to be having sex with. You mean if they can't have conversation? Yeah. Yeah. About sex. Yeah. It's really important for for safety. Like, yeah, to me, that's a big red flag. If somebody can't have an articulate conversation about what they want in bed, then they probably have some hangups. And it's not to like shame anybody. It's a like you you can hear in my own story, like how long, many, many years from learning about sex. It took me to like have good consensual sex where I was able to communicate openly with my partner Um So it's a real journey, but just, like, know that it's something to strive for, the ability to do that. And the results will be there, hopefully. Yes, it's it does take patience and time and a lot of talking, but it's something that is helpful on the journey of discovering what your preferences are. Yeah. And maybe it'll save you from some really shitty sex. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Can you describe what you mean by pillow princess? Oh, yeah. I mean, pillow princess also, for me now, I think it's like the nice way to maybe say sort of like dissociated and checked out. Okay. Not necessarily passive, but somebody who's just expecting someone else to do all the work. That's a little, like maybe I'm like over exaggerating the lack of work (laughs) that I was doing, but when it came to, like, penetrative sexual contact, like, I was always the receiver, and I was, like, always on my back, mm. which is pretty anticlimactic in a lot of ways. It is. It sort of suggests uh, a passiveness. Yeah, and that there was just sort of expectation that I would lie there and receive ple- pleasure from penetration, no. and that felt, like, very princessy. Because yeah. I wasn't doing a lot of work, and now I know it's a lot of work <laughs> to top. It took me a while to learn that people can be bottoms, but they can also be very active. Like, they can be the one who's deciding what's going to go down. Like, a, a bratty bottom or, like, an active <laughs> bottom. Like, that's fun. Like, that's really engaging, and that's really different. And I think that's also, like, a bottom who understands, like, what they're looking for in terms of pleasure and they're like not afraid to take it which is great yeah and they're usually very specific about what their needs are yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) they don't just lie there Uh, 
I like your description of your parents' reaction to you finding the porn and them not wanting to have any kind of conversation about it. <laughs> I feel like that's very typical. And it's often like typical of parents to not take an opportunity to educate their children and instead just want to like shove it under the bed. Just don't talk about it. You know, like neither my parents are really parented themselves. Yeah. And so I think confronted with this like kind of serious situation and maybe they also could recognize some of my queerness from that as well it might have been like very difficult for them to wrap their heads around and the easiest thing for them to do at the time was avoid it or they might just not have known that this is like an opportunity to educate yeah because i well, we haven't talked about it. What a surprise. <laughs> I just can't imagine that either of them had really honest conversations with their parents, both like generationally and just sort of interpersonally. Yeah. I, I have the same thought about my parents. It, they just are not used to having conversations about sex. It's just not something they do. So I don't blame them for not being able to do it. That's just not the way they were raised. So... I got my education elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so it's, yeah, it's, you know, it's difficult and it's weird and it it makes our good story now. It was pretty tough at the time. Yeah. Like, it felt kind of hard to be punished for, like, seeking very natural, like, knowledge, like, very natural curiosity. But I, you know, have just, like, learned a lot about family dynamics and intergenerational trauma. And that has helped me sort of make peace with how that situation was handled. Listening to your story, I don't think of it as them being neglectful or abusive. It was just that they weren't ready to have that conversation with their child. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) But that, you know, things might be different for queer kids if parents were ready to have some kind of dialogue about sexuality and about labels and diversity and that sort of thing. But that's that's asking a lot. (laughs) Maybe maybe someday that can be more common. Oh, we can only hope. Well, thank you, Lee, for coming in and listening to two of those interviews. Oh, you're very welcome. You know, in our conversation today, we've been talking about a lot, a lot about resources for young people. And I feel like queer people just coming out might get a lot out of your story. Because I feel like your journey is one that is very well articulated and also very representative of a lot of people's journey. Well, I hope so. I really feel um, that I've benefited, as alluded, you know, in the in other aspects of this conversation from the limited stories out there of older generations of queers. Um, And so I hope that this participation in this can maybe help build that bridge to a little bit younger generation of queers as well awesome well thank you you're very welcome fruit bowl is a production of fruit bowl media all rights reserved check out fruitbowlpodcast.com to find out more about the project thanks for listening <laughs>